Hi, welcome to the WellDoc podcast. We're medical students bringing you honest conversations with practicing physicians surrounding wellness and medicine. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we look to those in the field for direction and advice in achieving balance and wellness in our present and future lives. Welcome back to the WellDoc podcast. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so we thought we would try something a little bit different, and we've invited Dr. David Stern and Robin Hershkowitz from our Department of Student Mental Health and Wellness here at New York Medical College in order to have a conversation about therapy and starting therapy and looking for a mental health professional. Uh, we just wanted to ask them some common questions that are asked about the topic. Like I mentioned, we have Dr. David Stern, who is a psychiatrist and co-director of Student Mental Health and Wellness here at New York Medical College. He is also a soon-to-be psychoanalyst affiliated with the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research. Dr. Stern has also previously written on understanding the concept of value in psychiatry and greatly enjoys supervising and training graduate students in the varied mental health disciplines. We also have Robin Hershkowitz, who is a licensed clinical social worker and assistant professor of psychiatry at NYMC. She is also an interventionist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Center's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She has been practicing for over 20 years, trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, problem-solving therapy, and supportive psychotherapy. Robin has earned her master's of social work degree and a post-master's certificate in advanced clinical practice from NYU. She has developed social service programs for nonprofit organizations, such as the American Cancer Society and Cancer Care. Robin has co-authored educational materials for patients, caregivers, and healthcare professionals. And she's published research on conducting psychotherapy for vulnerable older adults with high suicide risk and continues to be involved with research using psychosocial interventions for adults with cancer, focused on reducing physical and psychological symptoms of distress. At NYMC, Robin leads the Master of Social Work Internship Program and provides counseling to students. So we're clearly very lucky to have two extremely accomplished individuals in our Department of Student Mental Health and Wellness here at NYMC. And we hope that this conversation is helpful to somebody out there who might be starting to look for mental health care and doesn't really know where to begin. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Stern and Robin. Um, If you don't mind just really quickly introducing yourselves so that our listeners can know who they're listening to. Sure. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. David Stern, Student Mental Health Co-Director at New York Medical College. And I'm Robin Hershkowitz, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Great. So this episode is going to be a little different from what we've done in the past because May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we thought it would be nice to just have a conversation about things related to mental health and therapy for students. Um, So... Just to get started, I wanted to ask you both if you can speak to your different backgrounds in mental health and how they kind of give you different perspectives when you're working in the mental health field and working with students. I'll go first. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. Thank you for um, highlighting mental health. Um, I think it's it's wonderful. We appreciate it. Um, So I'll give you a general overview of, I guess, what Um, a licensed clinical social worker means, and then specifically what that means for me. So the degree that I have is a master's of social work degree, and the license is a licensed clinical social worker. Um, Licensed clinical social workers cannot prescribe medications. Social workers are trained in general to view individuals from a very holistic perspective. So uh, social work perspectives draw from philosophy, psychology, economics, education, all different different fields really to look at what drives and motivates people at, at different stages of life. But we're also really trained to look at um, people in the context of different systems. So what they look person in the environment is, is really what we look, look at. Um, and so what gets confusing about social workers is we're all sort of have this general education, but really the skill set is very much dependent on where, what training and education you've received post-masters. Um, so really what area of practice, what setting have you worked in, what type of additional degrees have you received? And then I like to say a fun fact is in the United States of America, 60% of mental health professionals and people delivering therapy are actually licensed clinical social workers. So that's my fun fact. I've been practicing for over 20 years. So in addition to my master's, I have a post-master's certificate in clinical practice. I'm trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, 
certified in problem-solving therapy, crisis prevention, supportive psychotherapy, assessment, diagnosis, um, and I'm also certified as a social work uh, field instructor, which means I get to supervise and, and train um, MSW interns. Um, I also have um, a background, been trained in mindfulness techniques, which I incorporate in my practice. So because I've been trained in basically multiple therapeutic modalities, I can basically shift my approach depending on um, the person. But I think it's really important when you're looking or thinking about a therapist that has this type of degree to really look at what specialty areas of practice they might have based on experience. Yes. So I'm a psychiatrist. A uh, psychiatrist is a medical doctor who goes to medical school for four years and then does a four-year psychiatric residency. The first year is sort of similar to all other medical specialties, you know, the intern year component. There are, you know, months on the inpatient medical ward. There's time spent in the ER. There's time spent on neurology. But then you sort of go off in your psychiatry world and you learn about psychiatry. Now, because I'm a medical doctor, you know, we work a lot in consultation with other doctors to try to understand and work together on uh, problems. Oftentimes, psychiatrists, for historical reasons, uh, tend to be the head or of collaborative, multidisciplinary team. So oftentimes, psychiatrists have, you know, director roles or, or roles coordinating care with a bunch of different um, colleagues. That's part one. Part two is that in terms of mental health and, and how one views, you know, what's going on for somebody, the medical perspective leads to a certain kind, a certain kind of way of thinking about a problem. For example, psychiatrists can prescribe medication, I should say. Um, oftentimes there's a shorthand that psychiatrists are the people who prescribe medication and social workers or psychologists are ones who do psychotherapy. And it doesn't happen to always be the case, but you know, as a rule of thumb, it's a reasonable thing to think of that, you know, to make sure if you see a psychiatrist, if you want them to, to talk to you or, or to try to understand you in a therapeutic way, you should ask them if that's something they're comfortable with. Um, but I will say that um, the medical model is, you know, there is a biological, genetic, you know, reason that someone is depressed. We'd like to think that if there's a biological underpinning, that basic science will lead us to a way of treatment to a medication and you say, oh, well, we know that this neurotransmitter or that neurotransmitter, you know, or this, you know, gene is the cause of someone's depression and therefore we can correct the deficiency of their serotonin and they will just be fine. The reality is much more complicated than that. I think sometimes it's very helpful to have medication. I think having a thorough workup is very important. There are obviously lots of medical things that can cause uh, depression or anxiety um, secondarily. Um, but I also happen to be a psychoanalyst, or I will be graduating to be a psychoanalyst. I've always found psychotherapy to be very interesting and deep, and I, I don't like the separation where it's sort of like the psychiatrist who is stern, pun intended, I suppose, who prescribes medication and solves the problem, and the social worker who's all warm and feely and problem-solving. I don't you know, think that's really how it has to work. I think there's a real place for empathy, understanding, support, bearing witness to someone's pain, helping them accept the limitations, the realities of the situation. That can be very healing and can be so healing that you know it can translate into improved mood or changes in MRI. So you know, the power of the mind is untapped. And, and so I'd like to think that having both perspectives um, is helpful for, for my patients and for my own sanity. And I just add that, that I think we both sort of highlighted some maybe misunderstandings or uh, preconceived beliefs about, about the disciplines. And so much is dependent on really the individual practitioner and what the area specialty and, and the additional additional training. And also so much is about connecting with the right professionals. So if they have the degrees and they, and they have the right training, are they the right fit? Talk about warm and friendly. I don't know if all social workers are like that, but you know, who do you feel comfortable working with? So, so I think it's an important distinction. And you don't have to know this, but if you do know this about yourself, you know, some people will say, I'd really like to think of my depression as, as something that's caused by a chemical imbalance. And I would like to go to someone who can be authoritative and definitive and, and diagnose my problem, give me a medication, and then I can get up and moving, you know, be moving. That's perfectly reasonable. You always want to meet the person where they are, especially if they have a point of view and perspective of, about what they want. Yeah, definitely. I think that's why we wanted to cover this topic in this podcast is because 
there's so many different kinds of mental health professionals out there. And it's, if you're just starting to think about it, it can be kind of intimidating to figure out what you want or what you need in a professional and how to find one that works for you, because it really is about that interpersonal connection. Um, So just to have more of an idea of what's available out there. Um, Before we move on, I know we couldn't have Dr. Baird Feldman here today, but she's our clinical psychologist in the Department of Student Mental Health and Wellness. And I was wondering if one of you could speak to maybe her background a little bit more and what perspective she might be able to bring that is different from your backgrounds. Sure. I guess we'll we'll both take take a a turn at that, you know. Dr. Baird Feldman is a wonderful person. If you if you've met her, you know she has a particular uh, um, take on things, which is always helpful. I think more concretely, she's a psychologist. Um, psychologists receive a PhD or a PsyD, a postgraduate education. There is there's not the medical school component. Um, there is much more um, baked in uh, psychotherapeutic training, uh, more rigorous training on theory, et cetera. Now within psychologists, there are different expertise or different focuses. Dr. Baird Feldman is a a neuropsychologist by training. um, And what that means is she is able to diagnose through formalized testing uh, a lot of neuropsychological problems like ADHD, for example, or dyslexia, dementia, you know, so psychiatric or neurologic deficits. There are also structured interviews and diagnostic assessments that have to do with personality disorders and other kinds of things. And she has the expertise to be able to use these tests. As an example, like people might come in and say, well, I don't know if I have ADHD or not. And it's in the gray area. And she can do six to eight hours of neuropsychological testing. Someone takes a bunch of, answers a bunch of questions, does a lot of questions that that are timed in terms of how fast or how accurate they are. And then she's able to compare the results to a standardized group of people and say, well, 95% of people who scored like you st- scored have ADHD. Therefore, I'm comfortable giving the, the diagnosis. I'll stop there. I'll see if Robin has anything to Very comprehensive. I have nothing to add to that. Great. So, uh, Robin, you mentioned that you're trained in a few different kinds of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the kinds of therapy that are available out there, um, what they're kind of used for, and like some of the different philosophies regarding those therapies. Um, Sure. So we'll just start with cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy. So it's a type of uh, psychotherapeutic treatment that helps people learn how to identify um, and change basically disturbing thought patterns that have a negative influence on behavior, feelings. Um, it's typically a short-term approach um, and it's, it's quite effective. Um, it's similar to what you may think of a behavioral therapy where you're targeting a certain behavior, but it also really focuses more on unhelpful um, thought patterns and and those problematic thoughts and how that influences um, feelings and how that influences behaviors and they're all they're all connected. So it's really uh, very effective with a lot of different types of situations, particularly mood disorders, depression being um, very effective, anxiety, phobias, eating disorders. Can I jump in and, and add on to what you your very thorough description? Because I was thinking about this too, and and you know, um, like Robin said, you know, one one thing that I've always found very helpful is is they talk about the ABC triangle or affect behavior and cognition and that the the, the idea behind CBT is that in order to treat someone's uh, depressed mood you do not go after the mood you go after the behavior or the thoughts and that the way that the work the work happens is you go to the other other part of the triangle so two examples might be, yeah, the phone rings, a depressed person says, why would I ever answer the phone? It's always a bill collector or someone going to yell at me. And you might, like Robin said, well, that's maybe distorted thinking. You might say to them, well, could you imagine that, you know, it's someone asking you out or someone, you know, saying they want to see you or you won the lottery or whatever. And, you know, sort of working on these cognitive distortions that may allow them to think of real world things that are actually neutral, but that because they assume that negative things are going to happen, it affects their behavior so they don't answer the phone and then they feel like no one wants to hang out with them. Or a more straightforward one is people expect that in order to go to the gym, they have to want to go to the gym. 
And then they never go because they don't feel like going to the gym. And uh, a CBT therapist would say, why don't you go to the gym knowing that you're not going to want to go, put on your shoes, work out for half an hour, and then assess whether you liked it or not at the end of the workout. Right. Motivation comes after. Yeah. Or even another one that you'll probably, everybody relates to, I think, is like you're walking on campus and a friend walks by and they don't say hi to you. And you're like, they don't like me. Are they mad at me? What's wrong? And so you really personalize that versus, well, what else could it be? They didn't see you. They were in a rush. Something awful happened. Like it could be a, so it, it's how that then affects how you feel that maybe you don't call that person and then you really don't talk for two months and that person maybe is upset with you. So it's sort of really looking at these kind of everyday cognitive distortions and how they impact you. Do you, do you want to talk more about, I, th- I think Dr. Stern can really elaborate on uh, the psychodynamic approach. Sure, sure. So, you know, uh, there are two things that are embedded in these differentiations of therapy. What One is sort of how long will this take? You go and you see someone, you say, I'm struggling with X, Y, or Z. How long will this take? And although there have been efforts, there, um, you know, there are studied short-term psychodynamic psychotherapies, you know, brief psychodynamic psychotherapies. Those are pretty rare. And so traditionally, the rule of thumb is, oh, psychodynamic psychotherapy is like psychoanalysis and takes years and CBT, you know, maybe takes six sessions. And, you know, you know, so that is something to keep in mind, which isn't always true, but is sort of uh, what people think about. In the most general way, psychodynamic psychotherapy is this idea that our mind is more than just what we're consciously aware of. We have feelings and thoughts and dreams and hopes and fears that exist outside of our awareness. It's you know classically called the unconscious. It might be you might come out in a certain kind of dream, or it might come out with you know a slip. You you know you say sun and instead of saying whatever, and then all of a sudden it has some kind of meaning for you, and or you make a certain kind of joke. But the basic idea is that things happen to us when we were younger, either we remember them or we don't remember them, and we were affected by them. And maybe something traumatic happened or maybe something really difficult happened, and we figured out a way to deal with that, those feelings about what happened to us when we were a child. And we carry some of those ways of viewing the world or interacting with people into our adult life, and sometimes it just doesn't fit. You know, We're no longer nine years old. We're now 39 years old, and so the way you know we always throw a tantrum in a certain situation, and then people get frustrated with us, and we don't understand why it makes us so upset. So the idea with psychodynamic psychotherapy is to be able to link things that happened in the past with feelings that people are having in the present to help them sort of you know become freer and unlock this a certain kind of rigidity, perhaps that um, was necessary at a certain point and is no longer necessary. Interesting. I think I learned a lot more about different kinds of therapy than I thought I would today. (laughs) So knowing that there are so many different kinds of therapy, and obviously we only touched on two of them, and there are many more out there. For somebody who might be looking for a new mental health professional, do you have any tips for things that they should think about when looking for a professional or looking for a certain type of therapy and like what they should just look for when looking for a new therapist? Sure, I I can start. Um, I typically think of choosing a therapist like sort of choosing any other service provider, right? So it's a good idea to start to think about um, what it is you're looking for. So if you know from the beginning that you want medication, you're going, you should start to look for a psychiatrist or even a psychiatric nurse practitioner. You can, if you know who you want to see or you have an idea of it, you know, look them up, read about them, look for testimonials. But I, I think part of maybe the first place to start is just asking yourself, like, who am I looking for? What am I looking for? Who am I looking for? Are you looking to just talk to someone or are you looking or hoping to work on like a specific type of, of issue? Oftentimes when you look up a, a mental health professional, they will list their areas of specialty. So do they have specialty in relationship issues, anger management, sexuality, whatever it is that that you're trying to get some help with? And I also think it's helpful to think about what your goals may be ahead of time. So often people are very hesitant. Um, If let's say they work with us for a short amount of time and then we're referring them to someone in the community, they feel like, oh, they have to start over again. So one of the things I I think is really helpful is to think about, well, what am I looking for, for help on? What's important for somebody else 
to know or to understand about me. Um, and sometimes it's helpful when you're looking for a professional to try and match their area of specialty or their background to something that's important to you. And I think the search can be very vast, right? If you're looking on a, a general website, like your health insurance. So even if you can narrow it down on something like, I prefer to work with a particular gender, someone has a certain background or is within a certain geographic area, anything that you can do to um, make yourself more comfortable in advance is, is really helpful. But really just thinking about, do you want something time limited or longer? Everyone wants to feel better faster, of course. But um, really think that through. How much time do you have to devote to this? Are you someone who can go weekly, twice a week? Or are you thinking, oh, I'd like to go once a week, but I only have, you know, I can only do this for two months. I think that is is important as you're you're looking for, for a provider. The other thing I'll say, and these are just really, I think, fundamental things, is you're narrowing down your search. You want to look for what type of license does the professional hold? They should be licensed. They licensed in the state you're in. You can ask someone or look for how many years in practice do they have, right? How much experience do they have? How much experience do they have working with the issue that you want to resolve? So really you can personalize it. You can ask them what's what if it's not listed on their website or, you know, what do you think your area of expertise is or what do you have um, a specialty area in? And you can ask them, they should be able to answer what kind of treatments have you found to be effective in resolving whatever issue you're looking to resolve. And then you have the insurance issue, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit, but you know what I always, cause we have lists, but these, um, they get updated and change all the time. So ask them, right? I have this insurance, do you take it? And are you accepting new patients or do you have a wait list? Um, and then the other thing that I think gets a little uncomfortable, it's better to go sort of old school, pick up the phone if you, if you can get yourself there and talk to them. Because let's say all things are the same, this you've, Narrow down to three people. They all are credentialed. They're all really look like they they know what they're doing. You really want to pick the person you feel comfortable with. Who do you feel like you can relate to? Who? Where do you feel safe? And that may be making two phone calls and just having a what we call a consultation, which um, is often free, where you're just speaking with someone to get a sense of are we the right fit for each other. And also, if you make that phone call, it's really an opportunity to just put your questions out there and how a practitioner responds to you is, should be really informative to help you figure out do I, which person do I feel most comfortable with. But it's not unusual to call two people and, and just ask those questions and then, and then move forward. Anything you would add to that, Dr. Stern? I mean, I can riff off of what you said. I mean, that was very, I agree with everything you said. It was very thorough. And, and I, I just, the two things that I would add is, you know, you can't emphasize enough the importance of feeling comfortable and having a hopeful, optimistic feeling about the person that you're going to meet and, and work with. You know, it's not something you should fake. You're being asked to talk about things that are really emotionally stressful and important for you. And you have to feel going and hopeful that you can, you know, connect with this person. This is a really important person that you're choosing to have in your life. So spending a lot of time and doing research really makes a lot of sense. I think uh, in a bifurcated way, you might think, okay, well, it's better to go to a surgeon. Let's say I pick a surgeon who is a woman who's 45, who has done ankle surgeries you know, at a really good, reputable place for 20 years, and I need an ankle surgery. That sounds really great. It's better than picking someone who's 85, who might be slowing down, or someone who's just out of training, who does ankles and knees and elbows, and maybe hasn't done as many ankles. You know, So pick someone who has been practicing, is experienced, but also young enough to feel like you can connect with the person. That, and that's the part one. The other part is what Robin said, is then call them up, ask them your questions, see how they respond see if they seem interested in you, see if they want to collaborate with you. It's okay that they don't have an answer what's going on. You know, oftentimes it, it might take two or three visits to really talk about what's going on for you, to have them listen. Hopefully they'll give you some trial um, ideas, techniques, and then after a couple visits, you decide whether you want to move forward. And if you don't, again, you shouldn't fake it and you should look for someone else. But I wouldn't say if you don't connect with a therapist, you should just throw up your hands and say, therapy's not for me. It's, you know, I can't be helped. Just think, okay, well, let me, let me talk to someone else and then see if I can get what I need. Yeah, definitely. I like that you bring up um, the surgeon example because I feel like people always talk about choosing a healthcare professional that really works for you. And like with surgery, 
a lot of people will say like, well, I have to get the surgery. Like, so I have to choose someone, but with therapy, you're right. Some people might feel like, oh, it's not working with this one person. It's easier to just give it up. Um, but really you just have to find the right person that works for you. So since we mentioned insurance very briefly, um, let's move on to that topic. So I know, I believe that insurances are getting better with covering therapy and mental health care, but it's not always great and they might not always be able to cover what you feel that you need. So do you have any resources that you can recommend for people to look into if their insurance does either doesn't cover the therapist that they want or doesn't cover enough sessions or whatever it may be? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great question. So let me back up a little bit. So the law changed in 2014, right, under the Affordable Care Act, which required insurance plans to cover mental health benefits. And so the way it, uh, it, that is interpreted is most individual and small group health insurance plans are required by law to cover mental health treatment the same way they cover all other medical treatment, ensuring sort of parity, right, between the coverage of mental health and physical illness. So that means there's no caps, right, and it should be um, billed with the same copay if the provider you're going, you're interested in is in network. So that's that's where that that kind of fits. But then you could still be left if you're going in network with your copay. So it's the same thing as when you go to your GP. If that copay is twenty dollars, forty dollars, fifty dollars, whatever it is, that's what what you're responsible for. There's always an opportunity if that is more than someone can manage to I recommend have a conversation with the practitioner and say, would you offer me a sliding scale? I'm a student. Um, they may or may not do that, but oftentimes, particularly I think with, with students, someone might offer professional courtesy and say, well, I can see you. Here's how much I, I can accept in addition to the insurance payment. If that is, is not an option or someone, the people you've talked to is, aren't willing um, to work with you. The other thing that, that came to my mind is looking at some of the clinics that offer care, like St. Vincent's or, or some of the larger clinics, and, and we certainly have resources for that, where you can have a, um, a no-cost option or they have financial assistance to help with the copay. And so I think, I think both are good options, but it's really important to not just dismiss it as not even a possibility because there's always an opportunity. It just may take a little bit more work. And, and, you know, we work with people all the time, but there are mental health clinics in Westchester, all over the city, really everywhere that offer care. Now, the process might be different for doing that. So if you go to a clinic, you may have to go through a different level of intake. There may be more paperwork. The process is certainly different, but I think just being comfortable enough to say, you know, I, I am not able to do this or I'm, ha- I'm going to have trouble with the copay. What's available to me? Do you offer financial assistance? How can I do this without having to cover the copay? So really asking those questions. Very comprehensive. I have two things that I would add to that. W- one is, and you can come come to us and, and we'll help you refer. You know, In certain situations, there are wonderful um, junior therapists who are um, being educated uh, in psychology or psychoanalysis or whatever, and are especially interested in working with students who would like to do some sort of, you know, longer term psychotherapy, maybe like a psychodynamic psychotherapy. And um, because they're looking for students, they are happy to offer $15 a session. And although the, the therapists themselves are learning, they're being supervised by expert um, senior therapists um, and so sometimes you get the best of both worlds. You get a, a young, eager, um, motivated clinician with a supervisor, both for a affordable fee. Um, so like Furkoff is a, is a graduate uh, school in psychology that we have a relationship with. I mean, I say relationship, meaning we successfully referred students over there and they've had good experiences. That's point one. The other point, and and it's a little bit controversial, I suppose, in in a sense, but I think it's important, you know, in this venue to talk about is that, you know, in our experience, you know, students have to be insured with health insurance. Some of them use the school plan, which is Aetna currently, and pay for that, but that's more expensive than Medicaid. And that some students um, qualify for Medicaid, or perhaps all students theoretically qualify for Medicaid because they're not working. And so they take on that insurance. Um, but with taking on that insurance, it's a particular problem in mental health. Um, it's much more difficult. There are lots and lots of very good therapists who happily take Aetna insurance, 
because of the parity, they get reimbursed well, and we have a very long list of, of really good providers. The list for Medicaid providers is much shorter. In fact, they're almost all what Robin was saying, which are clinics, which involve fine providers, but more paperwork, longer waits. You might not see someone for two months, et cetera, and which is part of why our department is a bridge. You can always come to see us, you know, in the short term. If something's going on, we'll never turn you away. But it's unfortunate, you know, but it's 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 a give and take that you're if you're deciding to save some money and you, you know, think you might want therapy or something like that, it's something to consider. It's the reality. Yeah, that's definitely good to know about because a lot of students are in that transition period, you know, they're just turning 26, they're losing their parents' insurance or whatever. So it's good to consider the different options in terms of mental health care that they can get also. Um, something that was interesting to me too, you talked a lot about options that are available to students, um, but something that's also come up for me this past year being in the clinic is working with patients who Um, have wanted to go to therapy or have wanted to start mental health care and also have struggles with similar issues of insurance or being able to find a mental health care professional that works for them. So do you have any tips that we could give to our own patients if that does come up in the clinic? So you're saying your patients who are having the same barrier being the insurance? I would say if they if they are uninsured, the clinics are the option. If they are underinsured or they're not sure where to go, you know, I think we can certainly share some of our resources, but I think the answer is probably the same. You know, I think that's that's sort of what is is available. And again, you know, the clinic brings challenges, but that doesn't mean that the care that you receive won't be good. I think that they don't necessarily go hand in hand, but I think the resources are probably the same. So we've talked a little bit about like what to think about when um, starting therapy or looking for a mental health professional. So what can you expect from a first session in therapy? Obviously, it's very different depending on the provider that you're going to. But are there some general themes that you could tell us about? You know, like, like Robin said, I think that, you know, a first therapy session has to be considered of whether or not you've had a pre-therapy session, whether you've spoken on the phone with this person, gotten a sense of, of what they're like, and whether you look forward to working with them. Either way, I think what you would expect is, first of all, a lot of space for you to talk about what's bothering you, why you're coming in for help, what is the problem, as best as you can verbalize it. You don't have to know what's going on or what the cause is, but you're in some kind of distress and you're hoping that the provider can provide you some relief either that day or or some hope that relief is a possibility. So you're looking to be able to speak freely about what's bothering you, get a sense from the provider that they're listening to you, that they have some understanding about why what's upsetting you is upsetting you, that the questions they're asking you make you feel like they're listening to you as a person and not just as a diagnosis, you know, that they they don't just keep asking you, you know, some review of systems that doesn't seem to be relevant to you. Now, they may, it may be appropriate to ask some extra questions, but you really want to feel personalized that they're, they're getting to know you as a person and they can help you. Obviously, you want to feel like they're you know, know what they're doing, what they're talking about. They have the sense that they can normalize it for you and that that's something they can help you with. Less formalized, but just as true as you're getting to know another human being. You're getting to know what it's like to talk to them. Again, hopefully that you can work with this person and feel comfortable. Um, And then lastly, you hope that the person is able to articulate, recapitulate what you brought in You know, say, this is what I understand to be going on for you. Does that sound right? Based on my experience with other people, there's a couple options that we might talk further about, we might pursue. This is what those options would look like. These are the pros and cons of these options. These are the time commitments of these options. You know, what do you think about them? What questions do you have about them? And then be left with a plan about when to meet again, what further to talk about, and and what um, how you might work together. 
I just add, and we've said this before, you know, every therapist has their own style, but there are some fundamental sort of do's and don'ts that, that you know, Dr. Stern's talking about. I've heard some interesting stories. You know, if you're working with someone who's looking at their phone or they're not really too, that's not the right fit for you, right? So so that really is your space. That's your time. And you should have that person's full attention. And I think, you know, Dr. Stern's invo- uh, describing something that is interactive, you know, is, is that accurate? Did I understand that like this? Was there anything else you would add? It, it really is an opportunity for someone to understand you as an individual, and that's your your space and your time. So we've talked a little bit about like the resources that you kind of need to go find a therapist and find like a new mental health professional. But I think one resource that's pretty limited for students is time. So can you talk a little bit about like how much time people can expect to invest in therapy or is it really up to the person? Like, how do they figure that out? Yeah, I mean, uh, sure. Again, there's two ways to think about time. Um, One is frequency and the other is duration. And so I think if you want therapy, you should be prepared to commit to the frequency of once a week. You don't have to commit to a duration of three years. You could commit to a duration of six weeks, but you should be prepared to commit to a frequency of once a week because really, you know, again, how are you going to open up to someone in whatever kind of modality if you're just seeing them once a month? That's not really therapy. That can be, you know, some sort of support, some feeling like in case it's in case of emergency, I've already told my story. And so that person could be there for me. But it's not an engagement in in therapy. So that's number one. Number two, specifically to medical students, but to other graduate graduate students um, also, but I I will direct it to medical students, is, is, you know, committing to once a week also means working with a therapist who can commit to the same time. It's much easier uh, for both parties to be able to say, I can do 7 p.m. on Mondays give or take an exam on a Tuesday for the next two years. Because as soon as you're moving things around, again, the once a week becomes once every other week or twice a month or whatever, because students are very busy. It's very, uh, if you're going, as you know, if you're going to change a habit or put something in your schedule, put it in and up front, and then it becomes part of what you do. And it becomes easier than having to always think about it. And also, you know, uh, students, it's very common do a lot of either or thinking I could either go to therapy or I could get an extra hour of studying or an extra two hours of studying because I have to drive. And how is therapy going to help me with this next exam? And if I don't do one of the next exam, then I'll be really anxious. Right. So as much as possible, we try to encourage people to think that, you know, therapy is part of self-care, you know, and, you know, and that will keep your anxiety lower, make you more successful in school, have a more balanced life and generally be happier, which can only help with school. Now, I understand in third and fourth year, the reality of rotations, call schedules, short calls, overnights, you know, makes these kinds of things, you know, really difficult, if not impossible. And the idea of going to your clinical director and saying, I need to be off 4 p.m. on a Tuesday when you're on the OB rotation seems a little fanciful. So, you know, there are realities about that. On the other hand, if you're really motivated and you've been working with a therapist and the therapist is motivated, oftentimes they're able to make that work uh, with you. You show a commitment, they'll show a commitment to you. It doesn't mean they're going to say Sunday at 2 p.m. is when they want to see somebody, you know, but um, it is possible. I've seen it happen time and again. I would just add, you know, therapy is an investment in yourself. And so you have to prioritize. And like anything else that you start, it takes time, effort, energy. But, you know, if your expectation is that, you you know, you only want to go a couple times and feel better, you know, it's it's like most other things that, that you work on. It doesn't just, you know, if you're trying to, I don't know, get healthier and stronger, you go to the gym once a week. Uh, or just once, like, you're probably not going to reach that goal, right? You have to put some time and effort and energy into it. But really, if you can think of it, like, this is really an investment in myself. Um, and and what what's the value attached to that for you? And also, paradoxically, I don't I don't mean to make it a disincentive. So if it's April, and you're headed into to third year, and you want to talk to somebody, I think talking to someone for six weeks can be helpful, even if you don't continue into third year just you know that can just be really helpful for you because it's always easy to say well yeah i'd like to talk to someone but then x and y and z is going to get in the way so 
sort of like the CBT we were talking about before, get yourself to the gym, you know, the the mental gym, meet the person. And then like Robin said, the motivation might very well follow. You may find yourself able to make the time because it's actually like personally helpful for you. Not ab- abstractly helpful, but personally helpful. Right. I think that's a great point that you make. And I think it's also helpful to, I guess, like know that you can have the more like six week long commitments instead of having to think like for years, because I think we're so used to thinking about therapy as something that really has to be long term with one single person that you have built this relationship with, which is helpful, but in some cases not always practical. So we've talked a little bit about this, but I'm just curious what you've found as some misconceptions that people have about therapy and what like myths that you want to bust about mental health care. Oh my goodness. I'll, I'll put a few out there, but definitely jump in. You know, I think sometimes people are like, how is talking going to help? And so you're not just coming in and venting and we're listening and then you're leaving. Like there's a skill and art and a training and all that attached to it. I think sometimes people think, oh, I got to talk about, you know, my parents or my childhood. And that's certainly one modality, but that's not typically, you know, we're definitely not starting there. Um, and only if it's, if it's relevant and particularly depending on the modality, a lot of times we're talking about what's going on here and now and, and trying to work with that. Um, I've asked people, I've had people ask me if I, if I will hypnotize them. No, I don't know how to do that. But so I think sometimes just those basic things, it's different than talking to a friend, right? Trying to think what else, jump in here anytime. The, the most classical one is that the therapist is going to have a beard whether they're a man or woman, and they're just going to rub the beard and not say anything the whole time. You're just going to keep talking and you're going to look at them and they're going to be like, go on or just nod or say, "Uh uh-huh. And you're going to feel very awkward and anxious in the room and then leave and pay them $500 for for the right to have, you know, been in the presence of the therapist. That's not, you know, how it is anymore. Maybe at some point in time when psychoanalysis was, you know, preeminent or something people might you know do that uh but but no i mean it's like robin said it's the expectation is that you're going to see an expert um who can help you who wants to help you feel better or deal with the problem as you see it and as you present it and you know yes it may be that something has to do with something that happened to you as you know a child you may you know heaven forbid find yourself complaining about your mother you know but that might be warranted it may be actually something that is bothering you that you don't have the right to you know because your mother kept saying well i gave you birth and so how you know like and that may really you know uh, she may still kind of be a jerk sometimes and uh, um, but yes that, that's the sort of classical misconception the therapist won't talk you'll have to do all the work and they won't give you any help or direct or or feedback and and uh, that they're just there to to make a lot of money you know passively yeah. right passively right and and the other thing I'll add is you know you don't I think sometimes people think they really have to be in distress or that there's something really wrong with them if they speak to a therapist not, you know it's just not true I think most of the people that that we see whether here in our private practice are, are really successful high achieving people who are quite healthy or struggling with something and it's it's I'll say I'm doing air quotes sort of normal but that you don't really have to there's there's nothing wrong with you for coming to a therapist maybe you just need some help with something well that's a really good point just because it touches on something that that maybe we're going to get to but we should get to which is the the question of stigma um especially amongst medical students but in general which is you know it's it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if i admit that i need help therefore there's something wrong with me and so if i don't get help then there's nothing wrong with me uh when really i think it's turned on its head like robin was saying which is you know oftentimes the most inspirational people or the people who are most successful are open and able to reach out for help when they need help and this is an example of that and through they're able to connect with someone you know recharge receive help and then go on to have really you know rich successful lives or continue to have rich successful lives as they're coming to see us you know it's uh you know, there's, there's no reason that's too small or wrong to want to talk to a professional. It could even be, you know, I have no one to where I could just say these things that make me embarrassed, you know, to another human being and know that they won't make fun of me or make it about themselves or, or whatever. And you could just going once can be, you know, an important experience. Yeah, that's definitely such an important point. And I feel like Something that I love that I've been hearing more recently is that people say 
that everybody can benefit from therapy, like no matter who you are, what you do, um, just a recommendation that everybody should go and at least experience it. Hopefully the stigma is getting a little bit better, but it's definitely still there and it's definitely important to kind of talk about it. Um, So a question I have for both of you is uh, with the stigma, there's still a lot of people who maybe there's like a lot of activation energy necessary to get them to go see a mental health professional or even consider it. So do you have any tips on how to approach the subject with somebody who might be a little bit more closed off to the idea? That's a challenging one, right? Because somebody really has to be ready for that. And and that's different for everyone. I I mean, I like to think psychoeducation is really always helpful. You know, what uh, might be getting in their way of speaking to somebody. But I I think also maybe normalizing it and and sort of understanding that personal growth can can happen is valuable for anyone. But I also think that um, someone has to be ready to really invest in themselves. And if they're not, it can't always be a successful experience, but maybe try and understand or articulate why you think it would be valuable for them and what help they may need to be able to do that and what some of their concerns are. I think another thing to add, and this is this only works if it's true, is just being, you know, using your own personal experience or anecdote, you know, and not making it about them at all. Just say, you know, Listen, I don't know if, if this might apply to you, but I can just tell you, it seems to be that you're having a hard time. I remember when I was having a hard time, I went and spoke to someone and it scared me and I was really nervous about it, but it really ended up being really helpful for me. And this is how it was helpful for me. You know, so you know, everyone makes their own choice and everyone's experience is different, but just just so you know, I had a good experience with it. So if you have a good experience yourself with therapy and you can share that with someone, it, it really helps with stigma. You know, and they say, oh, I respect this person. I like this person. And they went through it. And then maybe I could do it uh, as well. And, and then, you know, some of the things that we talked about earlier, which is you're not, you know, like you said, you're not, you're not committing to two years of therapy. It's just a visit, a phone call. And if you don't like it, then you don't, you don't go anymore. Just it's not for me. You know, uh, meditation is not for me. Yoga is not for me. Okay. But at least you tried it once and you saw what it was like. Right. See how it feels after. There's no commitment. What's the downside? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think one of the big things that does contribute to stigma is one, not talking about it, but two, when you do talk about it, like what vocabulary you're using and how you're talking about it. Mm. Do you have any recommendations on like maybe words or phrases that we should avoid using when we're talking about mental health that might contribute to stigma or even something that we should be using when talking to people about it? I'll start. I mean, it's a good question. It doesn't have an obvious answer, I would say. It's, It's best if you use real language that connotes your real feeling about the situation. That's helpful both, one, to not pathologize, you know, I think you may have, you know, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or If you have a friend who, in your mind, heaven forbid, seems to be really, really worried about that people are looking at him in a funny way, using common language, it seems kind of to me that you you took that person's response to you in a personal way. I'm not so sure. What do you think's going on or something like that? Meeting them where they're at in the language that is accessible, I think, is important. And also... Whatever medical medical student you know diseases where you give everyone the diagnosis as soon as you learn about it you know oh my god I have borderline personality disorder and I have binge eating disorder and I'm a hoarder and you know I'm schizophrenic you know so using professional language without professional expertise is a recipe for trouble just sort of personally and with your friends so you know you're always in, in the role of, of friend or peer or whatever, you're just sort of saying, hey, it seems like you're having a really hard time. This is what I'm seeing. Do you agree? You know, I think maybe getting professional consult or help might, might be something to try. It might help you feel better. Yeah. Exactly that. You're not yourself. You seem, you seem like you're really you're struggling. What's, can you tell me what's going on for you? Let's, let's figure out how to help you feel better. Right. You're usually such a happy, outgoing person. Yeah. 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 Just commenting on like really being authentic and in a very genuine way that just sort of addresses what you're seeing directly, but gently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are really good points. Um, okay. I, this was a really great conversation. I don't want to keep you both too long, but just one last question we have is really, do you have any last words of advice or 
um, pearls of wisdom for medical students or graduate students or whoever wants to listen to this. Hmm. I think I gave you all my pearls of wisdom. <laughs> they were great pearls of advice. <laughs> um, I think that one thing that I've often thought about, this is a little bit free form, is, you know, our department sits in a certain kind of place in the university that we keep a little bit distant because of confidentiality and because we want to give the students the space that to be able to talk and then feel like they're not going to see us uh, in, in the day-to-day. But maybe it just can be helpful for people to think that doesn't mean that we're aloof and we don't want to talk or we can't have fun or joke. It just means that we're being professional and giving people space to seek us out when they want to. But maybe if it can be helpful, if they listen to this, to not think of it as such an intimidating experience or that we're intimidating, we're actually not. We're trying to actually facilitate an environment where people feel low as low stress as possible. It's already a stressful thing to go talk to a professional. And that's true just in, in the world, not just in the school. You know, when you think about going for help, think of the person as warm and interested in helping you and an expert, not as someone who's going to, you know, realize your deepest fears about yourself or something like that. And, and the other thing I would, I guess, that comes to my mind is, you know, ask yourself what you need to be successful here. And if talking to someone can help you figure that out. You know, I, I often think of our department as helping students reach their full potential. So if you're struggling with something, if you can almost reframe it as, as this is an opportunity for me to be more successful or reach my maximum potential and work through whatever is getting in my way of getting there. And this may be, you know, part of a, a recipe that of a number of different things that are, that are helping you be successful. So again, what's the downside? Maybe you lose a half an hour of, of your day, but maybe it's really valuable for you. And sometimes just someone bearing witness to what your experience is can be really meaningful, but there's more to it than that. But, but even in a, you know, a simplistic way can be really valuable. No, that's definitely a great point. And Dr. Stern, I fully support that none of you are intimidating and you're all great to work with. And I'm really glad that we're able to have this kind of collaboration with you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for setting this up. It was fun. We enjoyed, enjoyed myself. Yeah, of course. We hope this was an informative episode of the WellDoc podcast and that it's made the prospect of looking for a mental health professional a little less overwhelming and intimidating. Like we mentioned in the podcast, NYMC's Department of Student Mental Health and Wellness is a really great resource if you're looking to bridge your care or need a place to start. You can find them on the NYMC website at www.nymc.edu smhws. They're also on Instagram at nymc underscore tcdm underscore smhw, or you can find their contact information in any of the monthly newsletters sent out by Wellness Committee. In addition to their own appointments and crisis forms, Student Mental Health and Wellness also has collaboration with The Shrink Space if you're looking for mental health professionals in the area. If you like this format and you have any ideas of more topics you would like to see us discuss with them, please feel free to shoot us an email or reach out to any of the students on Wellness Committee. Finally, as usual, we want to give a huge shout out to Matthias Palmer for his audio editing and all the work he's put into this podcast. Take care of yourselves and stay well this month.